This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to talk tonight about one poem. One poem, that's enough. One lecture. And it's a poem you've got before you, I hope, by Gerard Manley Hopkins, called The Windhover. And if you have ever taken a course in poetry, you'll know that this is a sonnet. Now, usually, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poems, and this poem in particular, perhaps, is read in more or less a modern context. That's to say, it's read either as an expression of Victorian literature, he wrote during the Victorian period, or of a kind of adumbration, a foretaste of literary modernism. And so discussion tends to be framed in those terms. What I'm going to try tonight, though, is something rather different. I'm going to try to explicate the poem in terms of patristic and medieval uh, contexts. And indeed, I'm going to go back to what I think is an extremely important moment, namely the classical moment of the poem. Gerard Manny Hopkins, uh, like most Victorian middle-class schoolboys, did pretty much nothing else at school but learn Greek and Latin. His exercises were translated Greek into Latin, Latin into Greek, Greek into English, English into Greek, English into Latin, and so on and so forth. And then with this um, wide-ranging education, he went to Oxford, where he studied greats, which is the study of Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. So Hopkins, unlike most of us, even if we're Catholic, spoke Latin just as well as he spoke English. This is something we have to keep in mind when reading it seems. Um, one of the things that you can't help learning when you're learning about classics and about the church fathers, the patristic period and the medieval period, is you can't help learning about contemplation, contempl uh, contemplatio, which is a particular kind of prayer which is without words. You know the ordinary English word contemplation. Well, Hopkins, as a student of greats, of classics, would have learned about this. And he would have learned about it in the original sense, namely about the augurs, the college of augurs in the Republic. There were a small number of people, including Cicero, who were appointed by the emperor, sorry, by the senate, to the college of augurs. And then they had a particular job to do. They would go to the north side of the forum and with a litius, a small little crook, like a bishop's crozier, but much smaller, about that big, they would mark invisibly four corners of a rectangle in the sky. Then they would wait, with people trained to do this, to see which birds flew into that rectangle. The one that they hoped would fly in was an eagle, because that was Jupiter's bird. That was a very impressive sight. Other birds would fly in, and auspices, predictions about the future, would be determined upon the angle of flight and the kind of bird. So, when the Senate needed to know if this was a good time for Rome to go to Parthia and give the Parthians a good thrashing again, they would <laughs> Hold, um, uh, they would hold um, 
the College of, uh, of Augers to, uh, in the Northside Public Forum and see if it was a good site. Or if they were concerned about whether they would have abundant spring crops, they would also look for auspices. Now that rectangle in the sky is what they called a templum. Templum. So this is where we get our word contemplation in English from the templum. It used to be that people who were contemplatives were thought to be looking up into the sky. And when Christianity took over from Roman notions of, um, of the augurs, they too were looked upon as praying into the sky. It was a very common thing for Christians in the early years of Christianity to pray looking to the east, which is where Jesus was imagined to come from, and in the position of a crucified person. Prayers were generally much shorter in those days. Now, with that background, let me read the poem before you. How many of you have read the Windhover before? Yeah, wonderful. Okay, let me try to read it. This was composed on May the 30th, 1877. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dapple dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he hung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valour and act, O air pride plume, here buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plaudit makes plough-down cilian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Now what I would like to do tonight is just pluck one thing from this part. There are many that one could pluck, but this will be just one. And it's the motif of contemplation. The motif is divided. The contemplation is an act invisibly practiced in the poem, as well as in the highly visual language of the sonnet itself. Hopkins writes in 1873 the following. Poetry is speech framed for contemplation of the mind, or by way of hearing, or speech framed to be heard for its own sake and interest, even over and above its interest for meaning. It's really very interesting that you can contemplate something, a poem, without having a cognitive understanding of it. Saying there's something in the excess of the language which lends itself to contemplation. Now we might place that really interesting remark against another very interesting remark by W.B. Yeats in the year 1900. Yeats says, the purpose of rhythm 
it has always seemed to me, is to prolong the moment of contemplation, the moment when we are both asleep and awake, which is the one moment of creation, by hushing us with an alluring monotony, while it holds us waking by variety, to keep us in that state of perhaps real trance, in which the mind liberated from the pressure of the will is unfolded in symbols. One could say rather a lot simply about those two remarks like contemplation and poetry. Hopkins' poetry, as I'm sure you know, is not anything which lulls us in its rhythm. It has a strong, sometimes even violent, sprung rhythm. And Yeats's rhythms are much more um, even than Hopkins. Hopkins doesn't trade usually in symbols, certainly not in the kind of personal mythology that Yeats elaborates in a vision and elsewhere. But what Hopkins does, and other poets too, including Yeats, is that he draws our attention to poet's ability, as he says, to carry the inscape of speech for the inscape's sake. And that's going to interest us as we go on, especially what this odd word inscape and its cousin in stress mean with respect to the poem. Uh, is anyone here 19 by any chance? A few of you, good. Hopkins coined these very important words inscape and in stress in a paper for his tutor at Oxford, Walter Pater, when he was 19 years old. He began to write a paper on the Greek philosopher Parmenides. And you can read these now, they've all been published. Don't become famous, or if you become famous, destroy your undergraduate papers. <laughs> Otherwise, someone's going to publish them. So, Inscape and Instress, his main contributions to literary criticism, were when he was 19 years old. And I want to dwell for the moment on the way he starts the poem. I caught, and I've given you on the sheet of paper, if you have it, two passages from his diaries that I want to quote, because they are very revealing about what's going on. On the February the 24th, 1873, he says this, All the world is full of inscape, and chance left free to act falls into an order as well as a purpose. Looking out my window, I caught it in the random clods and broken heaps of snow made by the cast of a broom. That's a trick, country. And then again, September the 10th, 1874, in his diary, he writes, The woods, thick and silvered by sunlight and shade, by the flat, smooth banking of the treetops expressing the slope of the hill, came down to the green bed of the valley. Below, at a little timber bridge, I looked at some delicate flying shafted ashes. There was one especially a single sonnet-like inscape, between which the sun set straight, bright, slenderish panes of silver sunbeams down the slant toward the eye and standing above an unkempt field stagged with patchy yellow heads of ragwort. Two really remarkable diary entries, it seems to me. The first about inscape and the second about this sonnet-like inscape. And we're reading a sonnet. 
So he grasps what he calls inscape when looking at nature. He sees a kind of idols, a kind of pattern, a distinctive inner pattern that he takes to be divinely made. And that something, a situation, or a line of poetry might show to you or to me, anyone diligent. And he says a little later, two years later, at this time I had first begun to get hold of the copy of Scotus's on the sentences in the Badley Library and was flushed with a new stroke of enthusiasm. It may come to nothing or it may be a mercy from God. But just then, I took in any inscape of the sky, I thought of Scotus. Now, Scotus is a late medieval philosopher, theologian, argued a good deal with Thomas Aquinas, probably shouldn't be spoken in the mystic institute. Mm -hmm. Thomists and Scotus generally don't get off. But Hopkins was very taken with reading part of Scotus's lectures on the sentences of Peter Lombard. The sentences of Lombard written in the 12th century were the digest the Middle Ages used for all patristic thought, all the church fathers. It's commonly been said by people who write on Hopkins that um, Hopkins gets his notion of inscape from uh, Scopes. This can't be true because he used it years earlier when he was an undergraduate. It might be that reading Scotus, he amplified and deepened his notion of escape. But you know how it is. When we read a difficult book, sometimes, it has been known, we misunderstand it. Sometimes we misunderstand it many times before we understand it. And it must be said that Scotus is one of the most difficult writers ever to compose philosophy or theology. Also, if you actually do something very unusual, and take down Scotus from the, from the library shelf and read it, which I assure you is no easy thing, you'll find that he doesn't talk of this uh, interesting notion, Asseatus, thisness, anywhere near the start of these lectures on the sentences. So it's very unlikely that Hopkins found much, if anything, about Asseatus in Scotus's lectures. He might have opened it up at random later on in the course and seen the word, and he might simply have jumped to the conclusion. What I suspect he did read, because it's right at the beginning of the lectures, is talk of formalatis. Formalatis. It also has other words in Latin, but I'll explain simply this word. Um, there's another reason why we can't have Hesaitis as inscape, and that's because Hesaitis marks the absolute singularity of any human being. What is most singular about me, what is most singular about you. And human beings, according to Scotus, can't see it. Only God sees it. So it's extremely unlikely that Hopkins is suggesting that inscape is the same as Hesaitis. On the other hand, uh, formalitas is the intelligible feature of something, and that we can discern according to Scotus. We have to be patient and we have to be alert that we can see this formal, intellectual, intelligible feature of something 
not just in a human being, but in anything. We can see it in things in this room, if we're sufficiently careful. Now, these concepts, these intelligible concepts, do not tell us about the whole of what is intelligible in any phenomenon. Nor need they ever be formed. Sometimes we just don't articulate them. But when we do form them, they are objective. They cannot be annulled. More finally, a formalitas is identical with the essence of the thing in question, but is formally distinct from it. Let me try to explain that a little more. For example, if I see a leaf, I can see it as one, as good, a good thing, as beautiful, and so on. Now, these distinctions are not purely logical. They're grounded in a reality which is outside my consciousness. Other people can look at the same leaf and also see that it's one, it's beautiful, or whatever. Nor are the distinctions real since I cannot separate the reality, the, sorry, the unity of the leaf from its being. I cannot separate the goodness of the leaf from its being, and so on. There are distinct formalities in play. Now, I can shift my attitude from one of these formalities to another. I could look at it now as one, now as beautiful. And when I do that, it occurs in an instant. But it's not merely subjective. No, it's not simply a whim on my part that I do this. And it doesn't change the leaf in any way. I'm just looking at the same leaf, but now I see it as beautiful, now I see it as a beauty. The leaf allows me, gives itself to me, we might say, in conceptually distinct ways. In the same manner, I'm entitled to see the leaf as having both universal and particular characteristics. I look at it and see that it's a leaf and shares, therefore, all of the qualities of other leaves. But it is this particular leaf which might be malformed in a particular place or bent in a particular place. Now, Hopkins seems to have extended his understanding of Inscape by acquainting himself just a little with Scotus. And he doubtless went further than the 13th century doctrine of the transcendentals or the older distinction between the universal and the particular. One day, he was walking in the fields and saw some bluebells. It was in May 1870. And he writes this in his diary. I do not think I've ever seen anything more beautiful than the bluebell I have been looking at. I know the beauty of our Lord by it. Its inscape is mixed of strength and grace, like an ash tree. So the specific mixture of properties held together as one is what absorbs him. To be so taken with a particular phenomenon, one bluebell, there's many bluebells around, the beautiful trees, the beautiful clouds, there's many things that could have attracted him. But to be attracted to this particular phenomenon or situation, he needs a certain mood to come over him so that the in-stress 
the divine power upholding the inscape could be spotted. It's not simply that one has to be there to see this, one has to be motivated to see what is there in order to hold on to it tightly. Now, Scotus says nothing at all about moods affecting anyone at all. It was not his philosophical interest. And I think we see here a warning that we shouldn't try to fold all of Scotus into Hopkins or all of Hopkins into Scotus. Now, Hopkins was well aware that natural phenomena do not simply manifest themselves as inscape at any time. We have to approach them with the right degree of heightened awareness, mindfulness, as we would say today. But even this can lead to problems. In March 1871, he writes in his journal, what you look hard at seems to look hard at you. Hence the true and the false in stress of nature. Isn't that great? What you look hard at seems to look hard at you. I have that on the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> One must prepare for one's perception and thought of natural things. Be aware, if you wish, of the uh, formulatus and formal distinctions. And not allow oneself to slip, as we often do, into a state of fascination, which only blankly captivates one. In many ways, inscape is the exact antipodes of fascination. And because he knows that one must be particularly attuned in order to see inscape, and that he thinks inscape is valuable because it is giving us a kind of pattern which God has put there in nature for us to see, or in literature for that matter, he admonishes himself in his diary. Unless you refresh the mind from time to time, you cannot always remember or how deep the inscape of things is. Now what he has in mind is going on retreat, praying, practicing exercises of attention, and going on country walks. Among other things, this refreshment is necessary so that he doesn't look at nature and say to himself, mere nature. He says something far more interesting, far deeper. He says, creation. Because when you see nature as creation, there is a creator. And it's the creator who makes the patterning he calls inscape. Well, let's go back to the poem itself. I caught. The octave, the first eight lines of the poem, are cast as recent recollection, Hopkins catching sight of a kestrel and registering its pattern in the air. Its appearance and performance are wholly unexpected. He hasn't gone bird watching. And the young Jesuit, who is just months away from taking up, from being ordained as a Catholic priest, taking solemn bells as a Jesuit, looks up in wonder and seizes the bird, both with his senses and with his mind. And at this stage, 
presumably without any awareness of how deeply affected by what he has seen or the direction this affect will take. All the drama of the rapid glimpse of what unfolds from it can be registered all the more surely by reminding oneself of a poem written about the same time by Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet laureate. This is a little fragment of, uh, that Tennyson preserved called The Eagle. It's only six lines, I'll read it, because this is a great contrast with Hopkins' poem. He clasped the crag with crooked hands, close to the sun in lonely lands. Ringed with the azure world, he stands. The wrinkled sea beneath him crawls, he watches from his mountain walls, and like a thunderbolt, he falls. Now that is pretty good mid-Victorian poetry. And you can measure the distance that Hopkins is from mid-Victorian poetry by looking at that poem. Now, the eagle is not glimpsed here for Tennyson. It's encompassed by a look undertaken in a commonsensical or natural attitude. Although the fragment is short, visual, and dramatic, it does not promote a poetics of the moment, as one finds in Hopkins. The bird is not made to bear any theme of transcendence or contemplation. No templum is imagined. Tennyson steadily looks with admiration at the bird's sovereignty without explicitly introducing himself into the scene. And the fragment's drama converges on the last line and indeed on the very last word, pause. Because we know that the eagle is about to plummet for its prey. Well, if we compare this with the Windhover, we have something completely different. With the Windhover, the bird is first given in the speaker's glance, which is then stretched into an admiring look of captivation. If you look at it carefully, maybe when you go home tonight, it is gorgeously drawn out by the sprung rhythm for an astonishing six and a half lines. The second line of the octave, for instance, runs to 16 syllables, not the 10 syllables you'd expect in a normal sonnet of iambic pentameter. And the syntactic unit of which it's a part crosses three lines. Now, in terms of the poetics of a sonnet, this is really quite extraordinary. The following syntactic unit also encompasses three lines, with its full line being a flow of 15 syllables. So this is a glimpse being stretched out really gloriously. Hopkins' eyes have been swiftly jerked up, as I court suggests. From the beginning, we're held aloft in the recounting of the event. And like the poet, we become attuned to the Kestrel's ways of flight. And he tells us four ways in which the Kestrel flies. It is riding, it is striding, and it engages in hurl and gliding. Only the last one, gliding, inclines to the passivity associated with contemplation. The first two are equestrian, and that's a motif that we'll turn to in a minute. And the third is an active verbal noun, the hurl. 
And we can see from the way he phrases it that if we are to enjoy gliding, we must first experience the hurl. Hurl yourself, then you glide. You're active, then you contemplate. This is very much in the Jesuit mode of spirituality, of activity and contemplation. The poem's octave, its first eight lines, I think, set up, as Hopkins would fully have known, a templum. But it's a templum where there's been nothing anticipated, nothing auspicious. The bird's coming into view precedes the poet's awareness of it, and he takes himself to be called to respond. So this is a very unusual use of the figure of the templum. So the templum is actually reversed. It is the bird who looks down upon Hopkins, rather than Hopkins looking up to the bird at first. And the bird seems to seek something of Hopkins. Even when perceiving the raptor, Hopkins' gaze is, is extended beyond the realm of the visible to the invisible. He aspires to greater intimacy with Christ in and through the abrupt appearing of the bird. Notice the dedication to Christ our Lord, which he wrote seven years after he wrote the poem. Very late dedication, but very important in terms of the economy of the poem. The morning light is compared with the Dauphiné Vien Roi, ruled by the French king's son from the 11th to the 15th century. Uh, the Dauphin, in fact, we could spend quite a lot of time talking about the French element in the poem. There's a lot of French words the Dauphiné is a wild area of southeastern France that the Dauphin, the king's son, uh, looked after. And it's associated with a kingdom. The very word minion enters English from Middle French at the very end of this period. And minion must be taken in its 15th, 16th century French sense, favorite, darling, not in the sense it came to assume later in English, that of a subordinate which wouldn't make any sense in terms of the theology of the poem. Christ is the Lord, the King, the Son, in both senses, O-N-U-N, whose light-drenched morning is his kingdom, as he says right at the beginning. And the falcon belonging to the kingdom is eliminated by the light that streams from him. Now here I must come completely clear. Most people in fact, quite possibly all people who've written on this poem, there may be one or two eccentric people who haven't gone this way, have identified the falcon with Christ. That would be the orthodox standard reading. And if you write on it in a paper in English, I recommend you follow that one. <laughs> Forget you were here, because I'm going to try to tell you something else which I think is correct. <laughs> However, your professors won't know that yet. <laughs> Hopkins' glance is not just a glance for long. It becomes thoughtful, taking in the movement of the bird and beginning to articulate a complex whole, both natural and supernatural. As this glance prolongs itself, it takes in the kestrel in its act of ecstatic joy. The bird circles in the air, apparently without effort, 
although the word wimpling finally indicates that his wings are rippling in folds, like a medieval French nun's headdress in the wind. As the feathers keep rising and falling in order for the bird to remain in stasis with the wind. So the wind is blowing hard this way, the falcon is flying and calculating like a supercomputer how fast it has to fly and where its feathers have to be in order to appear in stasis. Why does it want to appear in stasis? Stay in stasis? Because it's looking down for prey beneath. And of course, the falcon hunts by having the sun, um, the sun behind it. So the sun lines the prey. And when it swoops down, as it will, it comes down at about 80 miles an hour, very fast. So we have two gazes in the poem, it seems to me. One more fully achieved is contemplative than the other. For the kestrel has complete mastery of his environment, is imminent within it, while also transcending it. And he enjoys his free awareness of the world about him and beneath him. Meanwhile, Hopkins considers, Hopkins in the poem, that is, the eye, considers or even contemplates the ecstasy of the kestrel, its instant of unsayable bliss at the peak of its absorption in the sun, before it moves at tremendous speed in quest of its prey. It passes from contemplation to action, and Hopkins sees both. And again, I emphasize that the charism of the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus, is action and contemplation, the two things together, work and prayer. We're not explicitly told that the bird turns its eyes upon Hopkins. But the young Jesuit hides from it, since, in my view, it is a favorite of Christ. Perhaps feeding its eyes upon him like those of a living icon, or at least internalizing the judgment of his community and founder. That's to say, in my view, as I hope will become clearer, the bird is at once a physical bird, a true physical bird, and also a saint, a blessed saint, enjoying its ecstasy in the light of the kingdom of Christ. Hopkins sees this, and he knows that the bird is, as it were, looking at him. It may well be a Jesuit saint, it may be St. Ignatius himself, for all we know, it doesn't matter. And he knows that he has to give everything to the Jesuits in a few months, to the Society of Jesus. So elated is Hopkins' description of the kestrel that the unwary reader could almost forget the framing dedication for a moment. For we do see a natural bird, yet we witness a bird that in its freedom and mastery is pointing us to Christ, to what happens if you do give yourself, body and soul, to Christ, to the possible intimacy that we can have with the king. It is, if you like, a brief natural theology. The description of the bird's sudden swing out of its period of hovering orients us to the kestrel, while the allusions to the kingdom, the nun's wimple, ecstasy, and the king all keep the dedication to Christ our Lord before us. How does it do all this? 
Well, it doesn't, it doesn't elaborate itself as an allegory. Falcon is granted an initial capital letter, of course. Um, and of course, he's using the French word here. He's not saying, he's not saying Kestrel. And the French word seems to give the bird a kind of dignity appropriate to the blessed soul it seems to be one with. Rather than allegorizing, I think Hopkins here is doing something that phenomenologists uh, all would recognize as what we call concretion. The kestrel then is not a token of a general type. Instead, it is charged with meaning because it appears in a particular situation. This particular situation which makes the sky the templum of a Christian kind. This meaning, as we've seen, has not been anticipated actively or passively, and Hopkins takes pains to speak of it differently in the octave and the sestet. In the octave, the first eight lines, the focus is on the howl of the bird, its riding of the air, its striding in the heights, the posture of its ecstasy. And in the sestet, the last six lines, our attention is claimed by reflection on the beat and danger of the bird. But before we reach the sestet, we have, I think if we're reading carefully, seen that there is um, not just an intentional rapport with the bird, but the bird is also at the same time, without being reduced, a blessed soul in ecstasy. So the intentional consciousness, as happens, maybe our consciousness, which is always consciousness of something, passes from the visible, the bird, to the invisible, the sight. Intentionality always exceeds its object. We might say, if we follow the, the, the great German philosopher Husserl, that we have a categorical intuition with two rays braided together, as it were, in the octave of the poem, namely perception of a physical bird and also belief, belief which is um, to come uh, of the saint. The one points us to a bird in flight and the other to a blessed soul thrilling in its intimacy with the divine. So the lyric is not solely one of perception. It's one of thinking. For the bird and the saint are articulated as a whole, a new style, if you like, of natural theology. Well, as I say, this is not what you're going to be told elsewhere. And so I'm going to underline my view one, one last time. On my reading, the Windhover captures a momentary crossing of two contemplative gazes. So intense is the blessed soul's gaze that the speaker is frightened by it, by heart in hiding, stirred for a bird. The young Jesuit is about to take final vows and give his all to the society of Jesus, holding nothing back. And he's afraid of that life for very good reasons. But he sees the uh, ecstasy of the soul in bliss, who may well be 
Ignatius Loyola, or another Jesuit saint, because he says to him, Oh, my chevalier, oh, my chevalier. The chevalier is a knight. This is not the knight of medieval times going into a list. This is exactly the image that Ignatius Loyola uses for the Society of Jesus that he seeks to establish. Everyone in the Society of Jesus, an almost military organization when it was started, will be a Christian knight. And remember, Loyola and the Jesuits rode on horses. The poem itself concerns two religious minds, each pressing into the mystery of God. And it's perfectly possible for someone to read the sonnet in the same way as an extended form of Lectio Divina, and to do so with feeling. I could read it almost as scripture without the, script, without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But my reading has been contemplative in another manner. I've not adopted a motif of ascent in reading it. I've sought to see the poem as a brief natural theology of the kestrel as articulated with a soul in bliss. And in doing so, I've tried to heed the question how, in all, its, all of its inflections, which in the sonnet under inspection prizes gliding, hovering, flowing. Inevitably, there's much more we could do with the poem. The reading construes the way in which we are led back to the kingdom in terms of a shift to the anterior, less the world about us into which we come than the kingdom that calls us away from worldly values. We're summoned to contemplate the bliss of that kingdom and the difficulty of entering it simply because, as Hopkins admits, we want to hide from it. Thank you. Please. You, 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 you ignored that shift in, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bell bend, which is, he, he's jumped out of, out of uh, French into Anglo-Saxon right, there. Right. And I'm wondering, um, the, the image is, is perfectly reasonable for the kestrel, uh, and he summarizes it then, hurl and gliding. Right. But, and then rebuffed the big wind. It, it, is there any significance to the fact that he has jumped back into roughly the 10th century? Okay. Um, first of all, Hopkins, even though he had a highly Latinate yeah. education, was all in favor of uh, preserving and extending the Saxon base of our it's language. Riches of suchness rather than degrees of comparison, right, for example. Right, right. Yeah. And, and he liked those. Um, nuggety monosyllabic words as well. He belonged to a rather eccentric society for the preservation of Saxon in English. So you find that he will, use, he will slip from that Latin and French vocabulary into the Saxon vocabulary. And he does it precisely at the moment where the bird is coming out of its hovering and making the swoop down for its prey. And the prey is, of course, some... Uh, some mouse or something on, on, on the ground. But what Hopkins sees, I think, is that it is the saint, particularly a Jesuit saint, who is after his heart, who wants his full commitment, and he is prey to the saint. And only if he allows himself to become prey to the saint and be consumed, he then only then can he experience the ecstasy 
which he sees the bird or saint experiencing now. I do talk about that in the full version of it, but I, I didn't want to keep us here till midnight. <laughs> One thing, I'll just say something while you're, while you're thinking. Notice right at the end, he says, no wonder of it. Yeah. No wonder of it. I mean, the whole poem has been about wonder. Yeah. And then he says, no wonder. He deflates his own poem. Why? Because he talks about the ordinary labor of being a priest, which must frighten him. You know, not only the prayer and the saying of mass and all of that, but visiting the sick, helping the poor, doing the thousand and one things that a priest does over the course of an ordinary work, which are wearying. And he hits upon two images right at the end, of plowing and of embers brightening up when a coal falls in the fire. A very homely image. So, even when you're plowing, which is hard work, when you look back from your plowing, what you will see, he says, is that the plowshare has cut great lumps of, of earth cleanly, and you can see a shine in them. So there's a moment of redemption, of something valuable, of grace, showing itself in your work after the fact. And in the fire, when the fire is dying out, right at the end, you see embers that suddenly flare up again, which is really very interesting. So there are consolations, even in the difficult active life of the Jesuit, when you can't always expect to have religious ecstasy. There's a wonderful tribute right at the end of the poem, I think, to the great 17th century English poet George Herbert in the final poem of his book, The Temple, where there's a, a soul who's received into heaven who um, and says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to be here. And the expression he uses is, ah, my dear, which is repeated in the poem. And so there's a wonderful hidden path going from the Victorian age back to the 17th century. A Catholic poet hailing an Anglican poet. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about the, the change of, of setting, of, of place from sort of the great outdoors to the, to the home? Does that, right. does that have anything to do with um, the contemplative prayer of Shut yourself in your inner room. Right. I think what he does, as he does in a number of his poems, when he looks at a topic, here a theme we might call contemplation, he never looks at it as a flat phenomenon. He's always concerned with the different modes in which it happens. Uh, this is what in phenomenology we call the regions of being. And if you look at the poem, let me see if I can find it. And I'll just read out one line that shows you this. Yeah. Listen to this. Brute beauty and valor, and act, oh, air, pride, plume. He's going through a whole range of different ways in which reality gives itself to us, and finding that at this ecstatic moment, they all join as one. So there is a kind of unity of life in the contemplative prayer that one has in the beautiful Welsh landscape, this was written in Wales when he was a seminarian. And also in 
the humdrum life of a priest going around seeing the sick and going into hospitals and into the slums as he had to do in, in um, Liverpool and also into people's homes and in his own room as a priest, exhausted at the end of the day, worn out, unable to write poetry, unable to have the inspiration to write his homily for Sunday. But he sees something, the possibility that God is there who can redeem the moments even when one is weary and inspiring still. But it's of a different mode. It's not the ecstatic mode. It's a, it's a deflated mode. Yeah. Yeah. The line where it says, my heart and hiding, is that, that didn't happen at his first glance of the kestrel? It happened only when the kestrel started diving? Right, because the diving, the, the kestrel is diving on one hand, First, he's frightened, whether that mouse or something or a role. But because he is seeing, in my view, the hawk also as a saint in bliss, who's also looking up to the Christ, who's enjoying the kingdom of Christ in the sky. When he sees it die, it's as though it is a great saint, Ignatius Loyola perhaps, who is diving for his heart, who wants to consume the whole of it with no reservation. So, the condition of possibility for enjoying religious ecstasy, intimacy with Christ, is to give yourself entirely to the society of Jesus. And if you do that, you're not going to have a life of violent poetry, you're not going to have a life of religious ecstasy often, it's going to be humdrum, mechanical, and weary. That's why he has a heart in hiding. I think he doesn't want it out there. He's not sure that he wants to give it completely. And then he tries to redeem that thought by saying, no wonder of it. I can understand how ordinary life has its compensations and its redemptive moments as well. Augustine, I think, would have liked it. Wouldn't have liked the style of it. <laughs> but he would have liked the theology of it. The heart in hiding thing also gets at the difference that he is to himself, right? That he discovers when the bird swoops down to to take him. Yeah, he, um, I think not only does he catch the bird, there's something in the bird's action that catches him. Yeah. Yeah. I yep. just had a question um, in the, I'm not going to get it wrong, the sestet in the end, the fire that breaks from the bend, is right. there a connection, do you think, in his mind, between the fire breaking from the bird and then those last tiny embers yes. at the end? Yes, definitely. Yeah. At first, it's the sunlight, which is also the light of the sun, the second person of the Trinity, behind the bird. So the ecstatic state, saint is illuminated in its swoop down, because that's what Christ wants. He wants the soul of Hopkins without reservation, agape, unconditional love. And so that's the ecstatic moment of fear. But also he sees that Christ is present in the dying of inspiration, in weariness, and it can break out again, but in a minor key. And in many ways, with the ember falling a little way in the fire, it's like a diminutive swoop. So yes, it's exactly the same. 
It's extraordinary how he modulates the first stanza to the second and third ones. One of the things I hope I've been able to introduce you to is when you read a poem like this, obviously there's so much there to appreciate technically and in terms of his relationship with, with nature, the innovation with language, all of these things just are remarkable. There's no way you can diminish any of that. But one other thing which is there is how much Christian theology you can uncoil in a completely original way as felt, as concrete, not as abstract writing of theology, as deeply felt, which impinges on his life at every moment, as it can on ours too. It is simply a matter of reading the poem with sufficient awareness of this. Not that that comes overnight. I first read this poem when I was 13, a few years ago. And, um, it's only, and I've read it, I don't know how many times each year since, and I've taught it many times. But it's taken a very long time for me to feel absolutely sure of an interpretation of it. And, just, um, and so, you know, when you're reading poetry, it's not going to give itself to you fully immediately. You have to be patient with it and enjoy it over a long time. So I did, you know, when, when we, the contemplation yeah. in the emblem Temple. is often of, um, I always think of it as um, stable things, unchanging eternities. Right. 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 And yet the, 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 the octave in which he's contemplating right. is really going. It's really it's going. Moving, right? Like, it, what's up with that? It, it's a reworking of the notion of the Templum. Right. He, he, as a classicist, he knows what the Templum is. But he's proposing a Christian version of it, which is really very different, of, of heaven, as it were, coming down to earth. And it's the auspices which are being given, if they're being given, are about him becoming a priest, taking on the full vows of the society of, of Jesus. Yeah. So he sees what the stake is. The stake is, you want bliss? You want bliss with Christ? This is the path you're taking. You've got to sign up, sign on the dotted line, and become a full member of the society. Of so much that's why it's moving so much here. Right, right. You have to move as well. Right. Well, thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you.